Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 108, Abnormal Normal Labs Part 2. If you missed part one, that was episode 107. It's in the link in the description below or wherever you're listening to this, just click on the description. There it is. Uh, This podcast, we're going to talk about creatine kinase or creatine phosphokinase. We're going to talk about testosterone and thyroid stimulating hormone. So all those three and much, much more in this week's edition of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Let's get into it. Covered creatinine so far. We've covered liver function tests. Now we're going to talk about creatine phosphokinase or creatine kinase, which, uh, you know, that means we could talk about rhabdo, which is fun. So I imagine this is just going to be like 10 minutes of CrossFit bashing. Is that what we're going to do? Uh, yeah. So we, I mean, happy to do that. Um, so our uh, (laughs) next one, creatine kinase, this is different than the first, uh, uh, molecule we talked about, which was creatinine. Uh, so remember that was the metabolic byproduct of, uh, breaking down creatine. Creatine kinase, this is actually an enzyme that actually facilitates those reactions having to do with ATP um, inside our muscle cells. So it's used for uh, rapid energy production in tissues that require it, like muscle, for example. And so since it's typically inside our muscle cells, if we're measuring it at higher concentrations in the blood, that means for some reason it's been released from the muscle cell and it's in the blood, typically due to muscle damage for some reason. There are other kind of variants on the enzyme that are used in assessments of heart and brain issues, but that's kind of outside the scope here. So in general, total CK levels in the blood are going to be dependent on a whole bunch of factors, including age and sex and muscle mass, physical activity, even the environmental climate conditions have been found to affect uh, CK levels in the context of exercise. Um, And so interestingly, something I found in the course of preparing for this was the amount of variation and controversy around what normal ranges for this should be. So typically normal lab ranges use the middle 95% of observations in white adults and just assume a normal bell curve around that. Um, This ends up leading to a common reference range of give or take around zero to 200 units per liter. Of course, this is kind of used, applied universally, not accounting for those factors, including people's training status and all kinds of other things that can influence CK levels in the blood, even in the absence of pathology. Um, And so there have been some recommendations to suggest redefining elevated CK levels as 1.5 times beyond the upper limit of normal. But then again, there's been other uh, studies done in a variety of athletes in different sports, and they've even found kind of different quote unquote normal ranges in athletes of different sports, which is probably, you know, influenced by maybe the uh, specific type of activity that's being used in that sport, maybe the amount of say eccentric activity or the amount of muscle mass overall that's being uh, used in that sport can has led to, uh, you know, many times differences, uh, difference in kind of what the reference ranges appear to be when sampling uh, these, uh, the CK from athletes in different sports and people who train in general, you know, clinically when, when say I use it in practice the most often it's when there is concern either for a muscle disorder, what we call a myopathy that can come from a whole bunch of different uh, issues um, versus somebody with rhabdo, um, uh, typically exertional rhabdomyolysis from, you know, excessive exercise compared to what they are trained to tolerate. I kind of explain rhabdo as, you know, like a, like a very severe version of delayed onset muscle soreness that's associated with enough muscle damage that it can cause some negative consequences uh, uh, in, in other ways, particularly to, to the kidneys. 
and in this situation, uh, in, in true exertional rhabdo, I mean, we'll see CK levels are typically at least five times the upper limit of normal. Um, when they're, when it's over 5,000, that's typically when you'll get, you know, admitted in a lot of contexts and start getting some IV fluids. We've seen levels go into the six digits, into the hundreds of thousands, which is, uh, pretty wild. Um, and, and there's certain risks associated with that. So that's the context that we're typically measuring this in. And that's why when um, we get similar to these other measurements we've discussed, people posting on the forums saying, you know, my doctor measured my CK level and, and they told me to stop exercising. They're worried about rhabdo. And, and the question is, you know, first of all, why was it measured? Um, because this is not something that needs to be screened in almost any context, there are some rare like situations where if you're giving a, a, a medication that can be toxic to the muscles, you might measure it, but otherwise it shouldn't be screened or measured in most people, whether they exercise or not, unless they come in complaining of symptoms suggestive of rhabdo. And that would be severe muscle soreness, you know, dark urine, uh, swelling of, of the muscles, particularly those that were, you know, exercised in the particular activity. I recently had a young uh, female patient who uh, she had come out of quarantine and she just went ham on the calf raise machine. <laughs> she, for some reason, that was her that was her thing. She wanted to go really, really hard on it. She came in and calves were swollen way up. CK was, you know, in the, I don't know, it wasn't crazy high. It was like maybe 15,000 or something like that. And so we had to treat her uh, because she actually had rhabdo. But if somebody says, hey, I exercise, that is not a trigger for me to measure a CK on somebody, even if they tell me I'm, you know, maybe a little bit sore, but I'm not having any other issues. So that's another one where, you know, sometimes people can be overzealous with measuring it. And then that leads to them posting on our forums with what do I do about this CK? My doctor told me to stop exercising. It's like, well, it's completely expected that this goes up in the setting of exercise. Um, you know, anything that causes any degree of exercise induced muscle damage uh, can cause CK to be released in the bloodstream. Uh, time to clearance of the CK, meaning the time that we would expect it to, to normalize, uh, is pretty variable. Um, the average half-life of this, meaning the time it would take for it to decrease from whatever level it's at to half of that, is about one and a half days. But again, to be clear, there's variation in this. Um, and so the highest elevations we'll see are after prolonged exercise, marathons, triathlons, heavy eccentric focused exercise, i.e. the kind of exercise that tends to cause the most uh, exercise-induced muscle damage. Um, if people train daily or multiple times a day, we may even see persistent elevations in CK because you're measuring it. You know, Anytime you measure it is going to be in some close temporal proximity to their last training session. So they're, they're they, they may have persistent elevations, but those are not necessarily problematic. Um, and additionally, you know, the increases after training tend to become less dramatic, the more well-trained you are. And this is, uh, a, the physiologic kind of reflection of what we've talked about before with the repeated bout effect, i.e. when you do an exercise the first time and it's novel and it gets you real sore, um, the next time you do it less so the next time less so that's a, that's reflecting decreased exercise induced muscle damage. That's reflecting adaptation. And that would similarly be reflected by a decreased kind of peak CK level. If we were able to measure it at the exact peak, um, after each of those, uh, exercise bouts. Um, and so the, the other things that are worth mentioning is that there really isn't the, uh, a clear relationship between the levels of CK in the blood and performance like force output power output, endurance, things like that. And so it's been suggested in some places to use it as like a measure of recovery, like until it normalizes, we would not recommend that. Um, I don't think that's a valid use of the test. Um, and so once again, if your doctor tells you it's elevated, the first question is kind of why was it checked? If you went in and complaining of classic signs and symptoms of 
of uh, of rhabdo. If assuming you're you know a generally healthy person who trains. Um, uh, then that's a reasonable reason to check it. If you're totally healthy and you didn't have any reason to be concerned about rhabdo, it probably shouldn't have been checked. It shouldn't be general screening measured, you know, just for the sake of measuring in essentially anybody. Um, and then, of course, there are some more complex, rare kind of clinical scenarios where it'd be measured for for other reasons. Um, and so, if uh, you want, if you are being checked for it for a legitimate reason, and you want to make sure that your exercise is not, uh, you know, influencing or confounding the result, I would just that's a situation where you probably have to take a few days off and recheck it probably around a week later, give or take. Yeah. The, the main problem I see with the CK being checked, um, uh, particularly in the, in the research world is that researchers are trying to correlate CK levels with some, some sort of predictive potential for performance or, or ex- training adaptation. So they, they'll assess two different training interventions and then look at CK levels and see like yeah. and, and conclude, oh, this is correlated with a higher CK level. So, you know, potentially more fitness adaptations or less fitness adaptations or a higher fitness uh, performance potential. And it's just like, right. no, not, val- not valid. No, there are too many variables that go into play um, with CK levels. And so you can't use them predictively or prescriptively. And so would not recommend Though prescriptively, people are doing it. <laughs> prescriptively would be interesting. Like squat a set of five at CK of two fifty, like an RPE kind of prescription. <laughs> well, that's right. It's you know, it's people getting, you know, these the blood draws, you know, regularly and then getting their CK level checked. It's like, oh, you had a high stress session today because your CK level is this. And it's like, well, what if you're just dehydrated? Or what if it was hotter in the gym? It doesn't necessarily mean it's more, you know, more stimulus being applied or even more fatigue. It just, you know, is a thing. It, we we don't have yet a great sort of algorithm or, or series of tests that can predict how you're going to perform or adapt to a particular, uh, bout of physical exercise. You know, the, we've tried a bunch of stuff like, Oh, do a hand grip strength test prior to training. Like, does it correlate to your squat strength or deadlift strength? Uh, no, it does not. Okay. Do like this finger tap test where you try to tap a button as many times as possible in a set amount of time. Does that correlate? No, uh, like all these different things that some of them that are, that are, seem kind of out there and it's like we haven't figured it out yet so and ck is certainly not one of the things that we could use reliably so should you get screened for ck austin negative yeah no uh yeah (laughs) even even if you had a disease you know that resulted in regular you know high ck levels like even if you had a a a history of rhabdo you're still not going to be getting these tested unless you have symptoms of rhabdo for example so all right Moving on. We're more than halfway there. I feel like if we could license the song from Bon Jovi, Living on a Prayer, <laughs> well, like I don't want to get in trouble, but we are halfway there. We're going to talk about testosterone, everybody's favorite hormone. Everybody loves it. Always talk about the testosterone. All right. So let's talk. Let's start here. Also, I have like 15 references just, you know, to really <laughs> support what I'm saying, because people are like, but I heard that testosterone did this. That's not how anyone sounds. I've literally never heard another human sound like that. <laughs> but that's how it that's how like when I read it online, when people say I read it in an article like the testosterone does this, that or the other. I'm like, what kind of article was this? And like, how confident should we be in that? All right. So a lot of resources for you guys to check out in the description below. We've talked about testosterone a bunch. We're going to do it again. Uh, so what is testosterone? It's a steroid hormone. It's produced in the testes in men and in the ovaries, adrenal gland. That's the gland that sits on top of the kidneys uh, and other tissues in women. It has many functions, including fetal development, bone metabolism, muscle development, 
some secondary sexual characteristics, etc. It's found in all sorts of different uh, fluids in the body, everything from blood to sal- uh, saliva. It's everywhere. It does a bunch of things. And look, it's complicated. But that's what testosterone is. Um, we often refer to the condition of having low testosterone as particularly in men as hypogonadism. Um, but real realistically having a low testosterone level and or reduced sperm production is basically the definition of male hypogonadism uh, and women, they can also have reduced levels of testosterone and that's t- typically termed androgen deficiency, um, androgen referring to this sort of quote unquote male hormone, but that's maybe not, not precise either. Uh, but females also have this hormone, so maybe we shouldn't refer to it as a male hormone. Uh, and also that actual diagnosis lacks this well-defined clinical feature and biochemical characterization, so we don't really uh, recommend using that. Neither does the Endocrine Society clinical practice guidelines. So it's like, why even diagnose somebody with androgen deficiency in that case? But in, in any case, uh, and similar to the other things we've discussed so far, we do not recommend screening for hypogonadism at the population level, but rather we assess individuals at risk for hypogonadism. Those, uh, so that would be people with certain medical conditions like a pituitary disease, HIV, infertility, type two diabetes, etc., or those on medications affecting testosterone production, uh, and and also those who exhibit a clinical suspicion of hypogonadism. So it's not just I got to go get my testosterone levels checked just to see. And we've talked about this ad nauseum before. It just doesn't provide a, ben- a, a, a benefit and can uh, cause some harm. You have to rule out a bunch of other stuff that may be contributory too. So if just if you're, for instance, if you have fatigue, the initial workup of fatigue does not involve getting a testosterone level. Um, there's other stuff that happens before that. And then if you have other signs of hypogonadism, you sure you can get a testosterone level, but don't just get it checked to say, I need to know what it is because it really has no effect on your on your training outcomes and, and, and other, uh, and like sexual performance, unless it's very, very low and you have others, you know, signs and symptoms. So as far as testing, we've discussed this before. The preferred test is a serum total testosterone. So it's basically all the testosterone in the blood bound or free. Most of the majority of it is bound to another protein to carry it around, but some of it's free, but you get a total serum testosterone It's measured between eight to 10 AM fasted. Um, because that's when the highest levels are seen. And so if you have uh, low testosterone, it should be present then. Um, and then you're going to get it checked twice. And so you'd like to see two low testosterone levels in a row um, measured at that time. The lowest levels are typically seen in the evening. So around 8 p.m., where testosterone levels are about 70% of your maximal levels. Now, this has no real effect on training sort of performance, your testosterone level in the short term. But if you wanted to get an artificially low testosterone level for some reason, you would just check it at the inappropriate time. So check it at night. It's like, oh, look, I have low testosterone. It's like, well, (laughs) you you probably don't. This is just a normal sort of uh, circadian rhythm of testosterone uh, pulsatility. Um, As far as normal levels in in healthy males, testosterone levels range from about 250 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, There's some slight variation on the upper and lower limits depending on the lab and the age of the individual. Um, women on the other hand are about 20 to 60 nanograms per deciliter with an additional variation, uh, based on the lab and the phase of the menstrual cycle. Um, despite these wide ranges, so 250 to a thousand, that's a fourfold difference, 20 to 60, you know, threefold difference. This wide range does not really appear to confer any athletic advantage. So effectively it doesn't matter if you got a testosterone level of 900 or testosterone, testosterone level of 300 does not really appear to affect performance. Uh, or training adaptations that you glean from exercise. So you don't need to quote unquote optimize your 
train your testosterone to get the most out of your training. Um, in fact, you see results all over the board from people with high testosterone levels or low testosterone levels. So for example, a 2017 study by Stefan Berman um, found that 101 out of 795, so that's 13% of elite male track and field athletes at the world championship had testosterone levels that were in the reference range for women. Yet there was no correlation there with their performance. They did a follow-up study in 2018, same result. And with respect to women, uh, women with high testosterone levels the high, they were in the highest third of uh, the testosterone levels, did not have a reliably uh, improved performance compared to those at the lowest level. Um, in fact, there was a negative correlation in the, the strength power events, like the 100-meter sprint, 100-meter hurdles, and javelin throw. <laughs> so again, trying to, quote unquote, optimize your testosterone levels for increased exercise performance does not appear to be uh, a great, great strategy here. Uh, as far as the effect of exercise on testosterone levels, so you're like, look, yeah, I know, but I've got these symptoms. My doctor wants to take a test, get a testosterone level. Like, does exercise affect my testosterone levels? <sighs> the results on testosterone, as far as exercise affecting it, are equivocal, meaning they're all over the board. So they're not consistent. Some studies show an acute increase, whereas others show a decrease. The acute increases are probably resulted to some of the the issues we talked about earlier. So decreased sort of plasma volume, secondary to like sweating out a bunch of fluid, uh, or changes in metabolic clearance, um, which can vary amongst, you know, based on the environment that you're in, based on the individual, their sweat rate, their concentration, et cetera. Um, in fact, there was a one year long randomized controlled trial on a hundred previous, hundred, uh, over a hundred previously sedentary men who trained six days a week with aerobic exercise. And they had no change in testosterone over the year, no change. Hmm. And how they were, how they were measuring this was again, eight to 10 AM not directly after exercise where their fluid status was likely altered. It was just basically a quote unquote resting testosterone level. And it just didn't change over a year, which is kind of what we'd expect based on what I, what I just said. Uh, that being said, there is a little nuance here. So testosterone does tend to change in obese individuals who start exercising and or lose weight. Um, that kind of makes sense because ob obesity, particularly in males is related is a, uh, related to, uh, is known to cause secondary hypogonadism. So risk factor for low testosterone also tends to be bi-directional, meaning that indiv obese individuals, uh, tend to have lower testosterone levels. And then those with low testosterone tend to carry more body fat. So the bi-directionality there also, uh, obstructive sleep apnea is higher in individuals with obesity, and that can be a risk factor for low testosterone as well. Um, that being said, the testosterone increase seen in individuals with obesity who start exercising or losing weight typically does not take them from that hypogonadal level, so below the reference range, to a normal level. Rather, they see a relatively small increase, like 58 nanograms per deciliter, um, and that's with uh, about a 15% weight loss. So substantial weight loss, but not a huge bang for your buck with respect to testosterone levels. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. I've definitely seen patients uh, and, and read about patients who've had substantial weight loss and their testosterone levels normalize. Um, yeah, that being said, yeah, we just don't necessarily expect that. It's a reasonable sort of first line therapy, that lifestyle intervention. It's like, okay, let's get your sleep taken care of. Let's get your physical activity taken care of. Let's, you know, try to normalize your, your, uh, uh, body composition and eliminate any other maybe risk factors like smoking or excess, excess alcohol consumption. If you have sleep apnea, let's treat it. Let's see what happens to your, te your testosterone levels before we go down the road of like this lifetime, life long therapy with exogenous testosterone. So that's all reasonable, but I'm just saying it, it's not always the, this magic bullet. Um, as far as 
non-obese, uh, non uh, individuals who don't have obesity, we we can also see a decrease uh, in athletes. Uh, who are exposed to this chronic exercise, so chronic endurance training. So that's commonly said on the internet, like, oh, if you do a bunch of endurance training, you're going to lower your testosterone levels. And we actually do see that. It's called EHMC, which stands for Exercise Hypogonadal Male Condition. So basically what this is is a 25 to 50% drop in total testosterone levels with no symptoms. And it's not a transient drop. It is a sustained drop with no major body weight loss, it's associated with high volume endurance training, but no symptoms, meaning no sexual performance issues, no strength issues, uh, no athletic performance issues. It just happens. We don't know why. It's thought that maybe the plasma volume expands in folks who are engaging in chronic endurance exercise, meaning that they actually gain more fluid to deal with all the sweating that they're doing, for example, or and something. Because their, their blood volume overall probably adapts to, goes up. to yeah. a higher level. Yeah, that would make sense as well. So put uh, some potential mechanisms there, but again, it's unclear whether these folks need to be treated because they don't have any symptoms. Uh, more importantly, this is not the same as what's known as REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport, which was previously known as the female athlete triad, but now is termed REDS and applies to men and women, uh, although there's some controversy there. It's not the same thing. Uh, usually that in men does result in uh, low testosterone with symptoms. So mm -hmm. two different pathologies there. Um, in any case, the overall take home from this is that I would not expect exercise alone to substantially increase or decrease testosterone levels unless we're talking about chronic endurance training, in which case it seems reasonable to think that you may in fact get that EHMC condition and your testosterone levels may go down as an adaptive process, but you're not going to have any symptoms. So does it matter? You don't need to screen for it. You don't need to follow it. It's just until you have symptoms, we shouldn't be checking it anyway. Moreover, right. your testosterone levels don't really matter with respect to training outcomes, meaning that if you have a higher testosterone level, you don't get stronger necessarily. This is why we see men and women have the same relative improvement in strength, rel same relative improvement in muscular hypertrophy, same relative improvement in muscular power secondary to resistance training, despite an over five-fold difference in testosterone levels between the two sexes. So what's the point of measuring testosterone? I don't know, unless you have symptoms. Right. Any, anything else? I know this is like a pet <laughs> topic for you and you get mad that people are inappropriately getting their testosterone levels <laughs> measured. Yeah. Yeah. So since I've ranted at length about that before, I decided to, you know, kick my feet up and let you take the, take the lead on that <laughs> for once. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just one of those things. So like, for example, like this can just be like a impromptu case study. You know, if I had a, a 45 year old man, uh, who reports that he's, um, not getting great results from his training program. Um, but he's doesn't have obesity, uh, and he doesn't have uh, sleep apnea and, uh, you know, he's, he's eating enough protein, uh, but he's just not getting good results from his training. And he says he's not gaining a bunch of muscle mass and strength, you know, and he's wondering, should I get checked for a low testosterone? And I'm like, my initial response would be, no, this is more likely, most likely to be related to programming. Yep. That the programming is inappropriate for you, either the dose or the formulation or both. Um, if on the other hand, you had somebody with obesity, with sleep apnea, um, with, uh, uh, maybe some other medical condition, um, like type two diabetes, um, and they weren't getting good results. It, they may in fact have low testosterone, which is a function of their medical history and their, you know, maybe, uh, uh, 
uh, current bout with uh, 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 with obesity. So correcting those things and making sure everything's well managed not only might correct their testosterone levels and allow them to sort of you know see the appropriate results from training, but also may correct this underlying thing to to start. And so again, you still wouldn't need to measure it necessarily. Yep, I agree. And I, so I think that, you know, when it comes to people asking, how should I think about if I am going to get tested, how should I think about this in the context of, um, you know, uh, uh, my blood test, and it would mainly be check it at the right time. Don't do a huge bout of exhaustive exercise right before you get your blood drawn, and uh, you should be fine. Yep. Yep, I agree. Uh, Have you ever had your testosterone levels checked, Austin? Nope, I have not. Yep. Yep. I had it done, uh, the Dave, the previous owner of the gym that I trained at in medical school was like really before I, this is before I knew anything about testosterone other than like what it was. But as far as like the actual screening recommendations, he was like, we should check your testosterone. And, uh, it was on the low end of normal. And that was about three weeks before I put up my biggest total at, uh, 1795 at 198. And interestingly, that was when you were, was that around the time you were working nights or no? Yeah, I was on nights. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe that messed with your levels. (laughs) I mean, probably, or it just, what I'm getting at is that it just, I would not expect. (laughs) No, exactly. Especially within the norm with it. If your testosterone levels within normal limits, it just doesn't really have an effect on, on your resistance training outcomes. So, all right. If you're curious, check out more of the resources linked in the description below. We're moving right along to thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH. So TSH is a hormone produced by the anterior pituitary gland, stimulates thyroid hormone production in the thyroid gland, which is, uh, those two are T4 and T3. Most of the thyroid hormone that's produced is T4, about 80%, and 20% is T3. Um, overt hypothyroidism is a condition characterized by reduced activity, synthesis or both of one or more thyroid hormones. So basically either you're not producing enough or the ones you do produce aren't being responded to appropriately. There's a problem with the receptor. Uh, And this results in one or more symptoms of having low thyroid hormone. In general, when we test for this, laboratory testing reveals an elevated TSH with reduced thyroid hormone levels. Effectively, your body's saying, yo, I need more thyroid hormone. And so how it does that is by pumping up your TSH production. Uh, So an elevated TSH suggests that the thyroid gland is getting a signal to produce more thyroid hormone, but isn't doing its job. Uh, In general, overt hypothyroidism has a TSH value greater than 10. uh, That's milli international units per liter and a low T4. So effectively, your TSH is through the roof and your thyroid hormones are low, shows that your thyroid gland just isn't doing its job. So you have hypothyroidism. Um, that's again, known as overt hypothyroidism. There's another diagnosis called subclinical hypothyroidism that is characterized by a high TSH with normal thyroid levels. So, uh, you have a, your TSH is high, but the thyroid hormone levels are normal. Um, about two thirds of the time when you retest these individuals, their TSH level reverts to normal. Um, and again, their thyroid hormone levels were also normal. So there's a huge debate about whether or not this should be treated. And uh, in general, most of the guidelines suggest not necessarily treating that at this time. Uh, With respect to screening, so like, do we screen people? Um, We normally take a TSH if we're concerned about hypothyroidism. So people have symptoms of uh, either thyroid disease or uh, uh, some other sort, like a malignancy potential, uh, or they've got a family history of it or something like that. Um, You take a TSH. It typically varies 40 to 50% 
throughout the day. It's lowest in the late afternoon and highest around bedtime. Uh, so variations of like 40 to 50% yet still being within normal limits don't necessarily reflect a change. So somebody who's got like a, a TSH of, you know, four one day and seven a month later doesn't mean that their thyroid is like getting worse. It's just probably due to a different time of day um, or other uh, factors. Uh, so in those without thyroid disease who are not pregnant, who are not taking thyroid hormones, uh, and they don't have detectable thyroid antibodies, suggesting that the thyroid's, you know, getting, uh, you know, damaged or, or potentially influenced by the immune system. The upper limit of normal is about 4.5 milli international units per liter. And the lower end is about 0.4. Now this is controversial yep. because <laughs> there, <laughs> and, and there's just a lot of data that keeps coming out suggesting that the upper limit of normal should be reduced maybe to two and a half or uh, and some that say, ah, we should just bump it up to five and keep it there. Um, that being said, that's for a whole nother podcast. Um, in any case, we see TSH values increase in the elderly. And so we may need to use this age adjusted scale, but right now the, the range we're, we're looking at is 0.4 to four and a half. Um, similarly, just from thyroid hormones, normal T4 is 4.6 4. to 11.2 micrograms per deciliter. Normal T3 is 75 to 195 nanograms per deciliter. Um, again, there's some laboratory uh, differences there. So differences from lab to lab. What happens with exercise and both TSH and thyroid hormones, they normally uh, increase because acutely, and this is a function of needing more uh, uh, fuel to uh, uh, compensate for how much uh, energy that you're requiring. So effectively, either TSH goes up and thyroid hormone activity is increased. So you get a, either a more sensitive thyroid uh, hormone receptor, um, you're not breaking down as much thyroid hormone. So effectively, you need to liberate more fuel from the tissues, so fat storage, um, carbohydrate stores, et cetera, to fuel your physical activity. So that's what happens in the interim. Also, some of that may be due to, again, decreased plasma volume, but that's typically what you see in the studies. Um, prolonged exercise probably uh, uh, doesn't appear to have uh, much effect at all on thyroid hormones. For example, they had a late 11 elite weightlifters that were studied over one year, and no changes were seen in their TSH, T4, free T4, or T3. Uh, similarly, and that's in resistance training. In endurance training, they had the, these folks uh, who were running an 1,100-kilometer race from the Baltic Sea <laughs> to the Alps. Uh, what? <laughs> like, this isn't like a 5K turkey trot. This is a, you know, ultra-endurance event. Took place over 20 days, and they basically measured their T4 and T3 levels each day just to see, like, what happened. They basically went up a little bit during the run. So, while, like, while, when these people stopped for to either eat or to, you know, drink or to go to the bathroom, they would basically stick them, get a blood sample, and say, hmm, what's your T4 or T3? It went up a little bit while they ran, but every time in the morning, they had normal T4 and T3 levels over the 20 days. So it's not like this, you know, acute stressor of this major endurance event had any real effect on thyroid hormone, either, you know, production or function. Um, and then finally, it's important to talk about individuals who already know that they have hypothyroidism and is there any effect on their thyroid uh, levels, thyroid hormone levels from exercise. So in treated hypothyroid patients, these are basically folks who've been diagnosed with hypothyroidism for some cause who are taking thyroid hormone to replace it to normal levels. Um, they did a study uh, over three months where they exercised one hour daily. On average, their TSH levels went down, 
but they had slightly higher T3 and T4 um, uh, levels, and they those had are, greater weight. Those are good things, just to be clear. Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so effectively, you need less medication to control your hypothyroidism. In addition, they had greater weight loss than treated hypothyroid patients who didn't exercise. So. Shocker. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, physical activity benefits <laughs> individuals. Go figure. So overall, we wouldn't expect any significant change in your TSH, T4, or T3 levels secondary to exercise um, in non-hypothyroid you know, patients. In folks with hypothyroid who are being adequately treated, we wouldn't affect, uh, expect any difference in training outcomes because they're adequately treated. Effectively, they're normal because they're taking the thyroid hormone. We would expect their hypothyroid to be better managed if they were physically active, however, meaning they need less medication and we get better results. So would yep. recommend physical activity for <laughs> hypothyroid patients and non-hypothyroid patients alike. Yeah, I agree with with all of that and would just reiterate the caveat of, of not um, over-interpreting uh, uh, variations that are likely to be just noise in the data. I mean, I think that for people who don't necessarily look and read and interpret labs uh, most of the day, every day, um, it can be tempting to say, oh, this change from this to this, that reflect, that means I'm doing something right or I'm doing something wrong. And it's really difficult to conclude some of those things um, uh, for relatively minor variations in the labs. There's, there's probably a whole lot more variation with respect to the lab itself, um, variation in terms of in with particularly with hormones, like you mentioned, the diurnal rhythms, like going up during certain times of day, going down certain, during other times of day. Um, and, and like we mentioned, the volume uh, uh, changes, uh, hydration status, things like that. So there's a whole lot, there's, there's kind of like a big error bar around any given measurement. And it's bigger than people think for a lot of things. There are some labs where that's not the case, but for, for most of these ones that we're talking about here, there are bigger kind of error bars than, than people think. And so try not to fall into the trap of, you know, obsessing or getting super neurotic about, you know, um, a single uh, lab, you know, lab to lab changes that may not be all that meaningful. Um, so that's something where kind of the guidance of a clinician who does interpret these things can, can be helpful. Yes. Yeah. It's just... And and I think just to add on to that is, in general, I wouldn't go looking for a hormone problem if training results were not going the way that you expected. Because I yeah, think it's far. Even if that was if, if that was the only issue, that doesn't you know prompt correct. a hormone evaluation. You'd need other other issues to be going on in order to raise the suspicion for that uh, enough correct. to justify testing. Correct. Correct. Would not be where I started. Might be where I finished, but not where I not where I started there. All right, thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by Dr. Austin Baraki. Hey, wherever you're listening to this, why don't you go leave us a five-star rating and a review? Really helps drive traffic to our channel, helps spread all the nuanced information in the health and fitness industry and promotes Barbell Medicine. We'd really appreciate it. And hey, we'll catch you next Monday with the brand new episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you guys later.